0: What Were You Thinking? Welcome to the show about everything you always wanted to know about exotic pets. Where to get them, what to feed them, and how to care for them. You'll even find out why some people live with a monkey. Now, here's your host, exotic pet expert and author, Bob Tart. Hey, Bob, what were you
1: thinking? Hi, everybody. I'm here with book character Bill Holm, and I've got some great news for you, Bill. You do? I love great news. (laughs) Well, this is a great news day because I wanted to let you know that I have just uploaded five shows to Mark Winter at Pet Life Radio. These are five shows. We recorded last year, and I've been sitting on these podcasts for
2: almost a year. Oh, no. I I thought, oh, that is great news. That's great news.
1: And do you know why I have been sitting on those podcasts for almost a year? Oh, no, why? Because my recording device fell behind the couch cushion. <laughs> so, he, I, I, wow. so wow. So he's got them now. I found okay. it. I found my recording device. Oh, oh. and you know, I wonder why the couch was so lumpy because it's uh-huh. a great big old Revox reel-to-reel machine. Mm-hmm. I don't know how that fell out of my pocket. I can't ima-
2: I cannot imagine how that happened. I wondered the uh, why,
1: why. I wonder how that happened. Really yeah, seriously. Yeah, you know, I should have known while I was sitting watching Hogan's Heroes that my head was bumping the ceiling when i was on really? the couch yeah
2: really well it is a big recording device i've seen it
1: yeah it is we've had it in this very car and right you, right i had it in the back seat and we did wheelies all the way to the de nature center
2: in holland michigan
1: which is what we are doing on the podcast that we are about to treat what were you thinking listeners to
2: oh absolutely they're going to love this show sometimes i don't know if people really love the show we don't hear a lot from a lot of people, but I think they're going to love it. Yep,
1: and what it is, this is part one of a two-part presentation that book character Bill Holm and I gave at the Degraff Nature Center
2: last year in Holland, Michigan. <laughs> Man, it's a shame that that fell behind the couch, isn't it? Because people would have liked this then. Well, let's dust her off and listen. Okay, I'm ready. <laughs>
0: what were you thinking we'll be right back after bob gets the ducks out of his living room don't go away Let's talk pets on PetLifeRadio.com.
1: Okay, well, thank you for that introduction, Abby. I appreciate it. (laughs) Thank you to Abby Stroop, Head Reference Librarian, Reference Librarian Director. (laughs) Sounds good, though. Librarian. Let's just go with librarian. <laughs> okay, down on her luck, librarian, <laughs> who invited us here today. And thank you very much to uh, DeGraph Nature Center. And when I say us, I mean myself, Bob Tart, and Mr. Book Character Bill Holm. And Bill Holm has been in uh, all of my books so far, and that is why he is Book Character Bill Holm, and he takes up even more space than usual in other brand.
2: And we expect the highest sales as a result for this book than the other. Three combined.
1: And what Bill is going to do, he's going to provide color commentary and uh, some of that in the way of color illustrations because we could not figure out how to hook up an Apple computer to the um, fabulous audiovisual System here, so Bill is going to walk around and let yep. everyone look at the selection of photos. And that's in fact, that. but he's used to walking because we just got. If we're if we see a little breathy, we just got back from Nyon King Point in Saginaw Bay just seconds ago, and uh, we were. Remember, you have to do something soon, and we were there. Oh, seeing to see a bird that you don't really expect to be in Michigan, and that is. Uh, One of the first birds that sort of excited me about birding. Maybe you need to go like this when I'm supposed to arise. And it is the yellow-headed blackbird. Who knew that there was a nesting bird in Michigan called the yellow-headed blackbird? And we went to Nyanking Point on Saginaw Bay to see that. And I think that's one of the very few places in Michigan where you can see the yellow-headed I'll come around your way. Oh sure. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> That's an interesting way. You're
2: slowing us down,
1: Bill. <laughs> 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 and Bill, while you're back there, you can yeah. show us would
2: you like
1: to see Hey, <laughs> <laughs> you can show the photo, Bill, of the other interesting denizen that we saw at Nine King Point. This one. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to it's book character close. Bill Holm. <laughs> <laughs> and if anyone is wondering what this strange device here is, this is laboratory grade equipment. This measures audience disappointment, and already it's
0: just—it's
1: off the scale. Yeah, off the scale. Yeah. So anyway, so we are pretty excited to see the yellow-headed blackbird. And I was curious how many people—how many people here keep track of the birds in their yard? You know, at the feed or anything, or watch them. Uh, well, not necessarily count them. Look at them and go, oh, my gosh, there's a red-bellied woodpecker. All right. And how many folks, like when you're walking at a park or walking the dog or the pet goose or something, notice the birds around you, too? Okay. And then my final question is, how many actually go out looking for birds' places? So, true birders, you may cross-examine. <laughs> oh, sorry. Oh, so, when were you on the night of? <laughs> <laughs> All right, now this is off to a bad start, but that's because I'm very confused about how to talk about Featherbrain, And the reason for that is that Featherbrained is my fourth book, and it is so far the only book I've ever written that has any content. <laughs> <laughs> my first three books were Enslaved by Ducks, Fall Weather, and Kitty Cornered. And uh, content in those is sort of minimal. If they have... uh, You brought one, thank you. Uh, But you have all of them back there, which are awaiting purchase, aren't they? It's a Reader's World bookstore. Thank you, Reader's World bookstore. And so if my other books, if they were anything, they can be thought of as how-not-to books. They're how not to have pets and how not to lead a sane life. But Featherbrain is actually disguised as a humorous memoir about how I became a birder, it's actually sort of a how to become a birder book. So that's why the content was a um, little bit more challenging than the other books. It's really about how and why I fell in love with birds and also how I learned to start identifying birds. And then after that it was about me going out and trying to find birds and then eventually uh, I kind of got the bug and I wanted to find a rare bird on my own. And when I say a rare bird, I don't mean a kiwi or an ostrich or anything like that. The fact is that a lot of the birds that I've seen, I've seen because other birders have um, posted them on some news groups or on some mailing lists. And so, like, there was a yellow-breasted chat at Van Ralty Farm a couple weeks ago, and that's a fairly rare warbler, and so I got in the car and hustled over there. So anyway, at one point I thought that that would kind of show that I had actually learned birds if I had discovered some bird on my own and it was a bird that other birders wanted to see. Did I do it? Well, that's the gripping. (laughs) (laughs) Right up there with the mystery. So, but also what's going on in Feather Brain are that uh, there's lots of scenes of different birds that I see, and I've read birding memoirs before, and nice as they are, the ones I've read are people kind of scurrying all over the country, and this here's this bird, and then "Here's here's that bird, and here's that bird. And what I tried to do in Featherbrain was any time I have an encounter with a bird, I tried to make it kind of integral to what's going on in the story to show how it played into what I learned about birds and, you know, as I was learning to identify birds and also why the bird was important to me in some way. So the other thing that I do in Featherbrain is that it's not just me. It's not just book character Bill Holm. But almost every chapter, there's some expert who weighs in and contributes to something. Like um, a few years ago, I saw a uh, rare Rufus hummingbird near Battle Creek, and I had no idea what a Rufus hummingbird was doing in Battle Creek. So there's a Michigan hummingbird expert named Alan Chartier, and so he explains how that bird could have possibly gotten here. So there's um, stuff like that in the book. And there's also contributions from a couple of um, New York Times Bestsellers who, for some reason, decided to, out of pity. To
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and of course, Bill. And Bill is. We have a number of expeditions mm-hmm. in the book. Hmm? <coughs> <laughs> That's part of the color commentary from Bill. I, <laughs> I, I, I got to start paying attention. <laughs> yes, but but first first and foremost, though, <laughs> it's a story about how I got interested in birding, and it's a story that goes all the way back. To my childhood, and as a matter of fact, I I grew up in the northeast part of Grand Rapids, and I grew up to a family that had absolutely no interest whatsoever in nature. When I was a kid, we would go on (laughs) picnics to places in Grand Rapids, like Grand Rapids area, like Townsend Park or the green areas around the John Ball Park Zoo. And what we would do, we would pull up in the parking lot, walk in a straight line to the picnic table, (laughs) maybe go to the swings, and then we would leave. And odd as it seems to me now, our parents never once said, hey, let's go for a hike. There's trails over there. Look, there's a stream down there. It just wasn't on their radar. And so I never had any of that. Did you have
2: any of that when you were growing up? Very little. Yeah. I don't think we even went on picnics.
1: Yeah. Yeah, we did that. (laughs) The one exception, and get ready, you're going to have to do something in a minute. The one exception was that when I was a kid, once or twice a summer for a few years, we would go, my sister, Terry Gray, the neighbor, and myself would get on our bicycles and we would ride two miles to what was known to us as Aberdeen Creek. And I don't know why we called it that, Terry Gray called it that. But it was just a creek a couple miles from our house and, again, we didn't go there because we were fascinated with nature. We went there to gape at the spectacle of running water that didn't come out of a faucet. We've <laughs> <laughs> never seen anything like that before. Okay? So one day I was busy doing something, and I missed the call to get on the bicycles and go to Aberdeen Creek. And I said, oh, gosh, and I was getting ready to head out on my bicycle, but my parents wouldn't let me because I was only, uh, like, nine years old, and I was not allowed to cross busy Fuller Avenue on my own. So I decided that I would do something so cool while they were gone that they would be envious of me when they got back. And what I uh, decided to do was that the neighbors had brought us a box of games and toys and things that their boys had outgrown. And in that box with the other stuff was the (laughs) Green Book of Birds. Anybody know that book? Yes. Yes. And so I decided, and this was sort of,
2: she flashed a couple pages. This was sort of a... Uh, Here's the, oh, it's the yellow-breasted chat, which you just... Oh, oh my, my head hurts. Here we are. <laughs> wow. We're in the flow. Wow. Well,
1: I think we can just stop right there. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, everybody. So I decided I would see every one of those birds, and I would go to the wildest place in our neighborhood, and I would find those. Now, again, I lived in northeast Grand Rapids, and the wildest place by our neighborhood was a block and a half away at Aberdeen Park, which was really not associated at all with Aberdeen Creek. And this wild place was a row of bushes behind the tennis courts. <laughs> so I went there armed with a pair of opera glasses from my dad's drawer. And these kind of looked like a lady's compact from the time and popped out. And they were two-power, mighty two-power. the optics were so bad that anything I looked at through the opera glasses looked further away rather than closer. So, so there I was with the Green Book of Birds. There I was with the Green Book of Birds and i didn't see anything and as it turned out of the 63 species that are listed in the green book of birds only one would have been present in our neighborhood anyway and that was i just turned right the, to it the american robin, robin yeah. if i had wanted to see cardinals or go? grackles the american robin. <laughs> or blue jays or starlings i would have had to get the red book of birds the blue book of birds or the yellow book of birds because they weren't in the green So I came home disgusted, threw the book back into the box with the toys and other things, and that was it for birding, I decided. I decided it was a fraud. (laughs) (laughs) So years later, in the 1980s, I met my wife, Linda. And Linda lived at the time, and this terrified me, Linda lived in a trailer on uh, several acres of weedy land uh, near Pearson. And I remember going out there to meet her for the first time. We met through a dating magazine called Single File. And the grass was about this high all around her cabin. And I just, uh, she had uh, no telephone, no electricity, and no plumbing. And her main complaint was that she was too separated from nature and she wanted to move into a teepee. (laughs) So this did not seem like the right gal for me, but, but it was. (laughs) <laughs> a couple of years later, she got another place, and it was in Morley, and it was a cabin. And this, uh, compared to where she'd been living before, the new cabin, it had electricity, it had half-completed plumbing, which didn't work, and still no phone. But I went out there to visit her for the first time, and it seemed like civilization because I could see other cabins <coughs> around her. So, And this was where I had my first encounter also with a bird that got me interested in birding. And I'm going to read a short passage from Featherbrain and what I'm going to read isn't going to take any more than three or four minutes and the reason I'm telling you <laughs> how long it's going to take what I'm going to read, Bill, would you like to...
2: Well, a few years ago, which book were we Enslaved by Ducks? Enslaved by Ducks, it was quite a few years ago <coughs> which is this one here, and we were up at the uh, Luther. Luther, see I know this story really well <laughs> Public library. At the Luther Library, and you were having like a uh, cold or something like that and you were having trouble reading, so I was going to I was doing the reading, and I started to, to read, and it was about a, I don't know, it was a couple pages long.
1: It was, it was ten a, minutes.
2: Was it ten minutes? And a few <laughs> minutes into it, a voice from the back of the room said, Is he going to read the whole book? <laughs> so so always now I warn people, and
1: I don't do ten minutes. So, <laughs> so this is my... Um, This is my first encounter with a bird that impressed me, and this uh, happened at Linda's cabin. There may have been birds in the trees around the cabin, but I wasn't seeing them until Linda invited me inside. As I bent over her inoperative kitchen faucet, pondering the mysteries of half-completed plumbing, I glanced through her window and spotted the songbird that changed everything. Get ready, but not yet. I had never imagined that such a spectacular creature existed. Bold and brilliant, the sharply patterned bird was nothing like the brown and olive smudges in the pages of The Green Book of Birds. I didn't know this was going to be this difficult. (laughs) You needed a mass spectrometer to tell those pictures apart. But you could place this songbird in a police lineup with hundreds of other North American species, and I would have been able to identify it instantly once Linda told me what it was. Linda, quick, come here right away, I said, sounding sterner than I had intended, but I was afraid that the apparition might vanish before another set of mortal eyes took it in. What's wrong? She followed my waggling finger to her brown plastic bird feeder. Hogging the perch and grazing leisurely like a contented cow sat a graphic artist's conception of a bird. He had a jet black head and back, white underparts, and a cream-colored bill. Tucked underneath his head was his most distinguishing feature, a fire-engine red triangular bib. This vivid addition to a crisp black-and-white body shocked me like a bolt of color in a grainy old silent movie. Imagine watching The Gold Rush and suddenly seeing Charlie Chaplin waddle into his cabin wearing a scarlet cravat. In spite of my ignorance of everything natural, I had grown up more or less familiar with eight birds in our neighborhood. Robin, cardinal, blue jay, morning dove, grackle, starling, pigeon, and, quote, sparrow. I also knew the red-winged blackbird, crow, canada goose, and mallard. Now, these were what Michigan birds were supposed to look like. But not this bird, which would have fit right into a tropical rainforest alongside a cockatoo. I got wowed all over again when it flew off a white patch near the end of each black wing appeared, giving its flight a flickering transformative quality, (coughs) turning the lazy sunflower seed muncher into a mechanical whirligig, rowing the air with flashing oars. What was that? I asked Linda. A rose-breasted grosbeak. Your time is soon. My expression indicated that I expected something more. He comes to the feeder all the time, said Linda. His girlfriend is streaky brown and white, and she's just as pretty in her own way. I doubted that. I doubted if another bird could equal him, but I had to ask, do you get anything else like that? I didn't realize it at the time, but this was the beginning of the mysterious hold that birds would have upon my life, a hold that I've never been able to figure out. But love is like that, isn't it? And by obsessing upon seeing the grosbeak speak again, I'd already taken the first step toward becoming a birder. Now. (laughs) And here is the the bird in question. question. But even if you've seen the bird already, I just want you to admire my photo. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, these are for sale back there as well. (laughs) By the way, I found a great way to, if you have a, a DSLR or a lot of cameras have maybe this feature built in, I found a real great way to take good photos of birds. And I just set my camera up on a tripod with the timer set and I pointed at the bird feeder and I set it to take a picture every minute. And I just take a nap. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, uh, three hours later, so I go through my pictures, and I usually have three good ones. You know, sometimes it's better more. than your usual. Yeah, and this is much better than I would take if I actually put any effort into it or applied my skills. Yeah.
0: <laughs> what were you thinking? We'll be right back after Bob gets the ducks out of his living room. Don't go away.
2: Get the stinky dog away from me. Bad breath and bad gas. Petey stopped eating. All his hair fell out. Itching, licking, missing fur. At least $5,000 in vet bills. Creams, antibiotics, sprays. No results. Everything we tried failed except the Dynavite. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E oh. dot com. If you want the dog to be healthy, you got to feed it something healthy. The omega-3 fatty acids. Flaxseed, zinc, alfalfa. The digestive enzymes that are cooked out of regular dog food. Dynavite is nutrition. The shedding is stopped and the itching is stopped. Her coat is not soft, it's silky, it's healthy and shiny and glossy. She's got life, she's got energy. Tons of energy, no more bad smell. Dynovite's the bomb. <gasps> dynavite is the best thing that's ever happened to my dogs, you know, besides me, of course. 859-428-1000. <laughs> 859-428-1000. 8, 8, for life. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E no. dot com.
0: Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. <laughs> okay, ducks are in the pond, rabbits in his hutch, and monkeys. Oh, in my car! Oh, okay, well, I go check my insurance policy. We'll turn you back over to Bob. That was the
1: beginning of my interest in birds. And. Linda and I got married a few years later. I think we only went together seven or eight years. And bought a house in the country because I was living downtown at the time and my uh, car was getting broken into frequently for such fabulous items as a stick-on digital clock that my dad got free (laughs) with a subscription to Time magazine. And I knew Linda would never enjoy living in the city, so we moved out to the country. And we moved to Lowell, between um, Lowell Township, And uh, we're on three and a half acres, and we're on the Grand River on the back of our property. So a good place for birds. So we put up a feeder right away, and lo and behold, the first spring, I was just absolutely thrilled when our friend, the rose-breasted grosbeak, showed up. You could always show it again, but... (laughs) And um, I was thrilled, and I had my uh, $39 pair of binoculars, and uh, I had my Autobahn field guide, and I really staked out the bird feeder looking for what else would show up. And after two weeks, I decided I'd seen every possible bird. You know, we had nuthatches and a couple woodpeckers. And I figured that was it. I got bored. I wasn't seeing anything new. And again, I put everything away, giving up just like I'd given up as a kid because I figured that was all there was to birding. And the strange thing is, like I said, we lived on the river. And I wasn't stupid, but I don't know why it never dawned on me that if I would have just gotten out of the house and walked into the woods and walked to the river, I might have seen birds like a great blue heron that were not going to show up at our feeder with any regularity. You weren't as at one with nature then. No, not as I am now, as if all can tell. <laughs> In fact, I'm virtually a giant silkworm. <laughs> <laughs> so, once again, I was all done with birds. Because uh, I thought I'd seen them all. And then uh, one weekend, Linda and I decided to go to the Cleveland Zoo. And we were uh, driving through Toledo, and there was all kinds of construction. And so we had to take some secondary roads. And while we were taking secondary road out of town, we drove past a place called McGee Marsh. And we'd never heard of McGee Marsh, but Linda has back problems and had back problems even then. And she said, well, let's get out there and walk around a little bit. We didn't know why there were cars there. This was in May. But we decided to go, and we followed the crowd to the boardwalk. We thought maybe there was a craft show or something going on. And then we got to the boardwalk, <laughs> and it turned out we were there at the peak of warbler migration.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, has anyone here been to McGee Marsh before? All right, yeah. Fat. Have you you've been there doing the warbler migration? No,
0: I've been there
1: every time. Well, if anyone has been to like the butterfly show at Meyer Garden or any butterfly shows where you know just with arms arms length, that's what it's like at McGee Marsh during warbler migration on a good year. We've been there on some bad years. It's like a theme
2: park for it, warblers. I mean, they're like right there.
1: And what happens is that they're as they're migrating north, they're waiting to cross Lake Erie. And McGee Marsh, for some reason, is where they funnel into. And so they're, they're feeding for days or whatever, waiting sometimes for a southerly wind to um, help them carry them across. And while they're there feeding, they're on this one-mile boardwalk. And they're, it's just dazzling. They're just all around, and they're very close. And these are, you know, birds that you don't normally get to see, and they're just, they're everywhere. And um, For example? Oh, no, I'm, I'm rushing it now. For example, and Bill is going to show a couple of the, uh, three of the birds that we've seen there. Is that my cute? That's your cue. We are a finely honed machine. So this, this one, Bill, did we see that this year? Yes, we did. Yeah. That's the chestnut-sided warbler. Then there's the uh, Blackburnian warbler. Just what I was going to say. You could walk back a little bit too. Well, that'll help burn up time, and I won't have to say as much too. (laughs) This is this is one of my personal favorites. Which is that the prothonotary, the prothonotary, prothonotary warbler.
0: So they
1: just go north into Canada from that side of our state, yeah, but they some from there. from Ohio, but some of them some of them nest there because I think the prothonotary I think some of those nest at McGee Marsh and some of the prothonotary nests in parts of Michigan too yeah, I think at Allegan state game area there's some yeah. and I think along there's an Ionia River trail by Ionia Michigan, but they're few and far between kind of hard to find but yeah so I'm glad you asked that because After I saw these birds, I talked to a birder that was there, and I said, oh, if only we could see something like this in Michigan. And she said, well, where do you live in Michigan? And I told her, I said, we live on the woods by a river. And she said, well, they might be there right now. So when I went home, she was right, because (laughs) we got home, we saw what we thought was a magnolia warbler, a couple of them. And so that, uh, again, got me interested, and that was kind of the thing that, from then on, I've just been all interested in the birds all the time. Put it eloquently. Boy. So I decided after that that I wanted to learn to identify the birds, because the only way I knew what the birds were was because other people were saying what they were. And, I mean, that's one thing that's good when we go to McGee Marsh. If you go during,
2: you want to talk about what that's like during the biggest week? No, no, go ahead. I was just going to complain about the place. Well, no, I mean, (laughs) it's quite amazing. I mean, it's a boardwalk that, that is just loaded with people. I mean, like that prothonotary warbler, if someone spots one, then the swarm of birders goes with the big cameras and tripods set up. In the, it, it's, it's hard to get through there sometimes. And then this, this little bird is sitting there on a, on a stick, kind of posing, and all these <laughs> flashes are going off. It's like paparazzi, you know, with this beautiful bird. And But, you know, but it's so great to see the birds that you sort of put up for the people.
1: <laughs> so, and uh, the thing that's kind of cool about it is that you don't even really have to know the birds because you just hear the name in the crowd. It's like uh, Magnolia Warbler. And so then you look where everybody's looking. Because um, they're not going to tell you what it is. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Problem. So I decided I wanted to learn to identify birds, but I had a problem. And that is I have a horrible visual memory. I'm just really, really bad at it. And I will give you an example of how bad I am at it. I also got interested in birds because at the same time, we were accumulating pet birds. And we had, and we still have African gray parrots and pet doves and pet parakeets and things like that. And so that was really getting me interested in birds from another perspective. And outdoors, we had pet ducks and geese. And the ducks at various times would have the run of our backyard. Backyard was fenced in, but it was old fencing and there were gaps in the fence and we didn't want the ducks to go through the fence because just down the hill was the seasonal pond and the pond often was connected to the river and it would be bye-bye pet duck so i was outside one day and i saw one of the ducks beyond the fence and so i had to chase the duck for about 20 minutes and finally i had to go back to the house and get a fish net and the only reason we have a fish net we aren't fishing people is that the term, fishing people? <laughs> we had got the fishnet to catch ducks when, they, when we needed to give them medicine or something, so I had to scoop up this duck, and she was upset. And it's okay, I was telling her everything was fine, and carried her back to the pen and put her in. And uh, I made sure and repaired the little opening in the pen before I got back into the house, or I would have heard about it instantly from my loving wife. And so I could tell her the story that the uh, duck got out, but I had already repaired the pen. And she said, well, which duck was it? I said, well, it was either Carla, Marla, or Darla. That were these three <laughs> sisters who were the product of poor family planning. To have some <laughs> and um, Linda said, well, was it the black and white Carla and Marla, or was it brown and white Darla? And I didn't know. And i that's really ridiculous, because I chased this duck for 20 minutes, and I held this duck. I couldn't remember. And... That's a big problem if you're going to be a birder. <laughs> and, Bill, would you like to show up a sparrow photo for me? And this maybe isn't a great example, but here's I um, I don't even know if this works, but here's a song sparrow. A song, sparrow. A song
2: sparrow.
1: And then Bill is going to quickly shift to a swamp sparrow. And it's like... A
0: swamp
1: sparrow. <laughs> <laughs> it's like telling you the difference. I mean, you got to remember, let's see... What are the lines on the face like? What are the lines on the head like? Is the breast streaked or is it plain? And it's just like too much information, you know. I can't even remember the colors of a duck. I'm not going to remember all these lines, you know, on on a bird. But then I read somewhere, and I didn't believe it, but I read that you can identify birds by how they sound. And I just couldn't believe it. Ooh, that was the end of part one. That's just part one of the show. <laughs> oh, man. What did you good. think? Could that get that, any better? That was really good.
2: It really is one of our best podcasts. Seriously. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, how would you assess our performance? Pretty good in that? Oh, I, I think it's really good. I think we exceeded expectations.
1: Okay. Well, stay tuned, and uh, shortly, our producer, Mark Winter, will post. Part 2 of our Degraft Nature Center Talk. Until then, look me up at BobTart.com. That is my uh, Facebook. (laughs) That's my... (laughs) What? (laughs) Look me up at BobTart.com. That's my website. Or friend me on Facebook. And Bill, (laughs) do you want people to friend you on Facebook?
0: Absolutely not. Okay. Thinking about buying a monkey? How about a ferret or a skunk? Then check out the show that will answer the burning questions, Where do you get them? What do you feed them? How do you take care of them? And most of all, what were you thinking? With exotic pet expert and author Bob Tart, every week on demand from PetLifeRadio.com.